from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll tell you about Everywhere is Queer, a worldwide map showing where you can find queer-owned businesses. Then a NASA astrophysicist shares discoveries made by largely overlooked women. The idea that the scale of the universe, and, and someone like, like Hubble, we all think about the, the expansion of the universe being discovered by Edwin Hubble, but he wouldn't have been able to do that without the groundwork of these women. Plus, we'll head to Alice's Garden Urban Farm, a unique oasis in the city that cultivates plants and community. Someone asked me last week when they were out here and they were observing all of the people coming through, like, how diverse is this garden? And we say that we're probably one of the most diverse spaces in the city of Milwaukee, um, and we're talking humans. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. When you travel, chances are you're using maps to find your way around. Charlie Sprinkman grew up in Milwaukee and currently calls Portland, Oregon home. He's visited 41 of the 50 United States, and he'd often search for queer businesses and other safe spaces wherever he was traveling. That sparked the idea to create an interactive map to help people find queer-owned businesses that everyone can access. In January of 2022, he launched Everywhere is Queer. So far, Everywhere is Queer has over 2,000 registered queer-owned businesses around the world. To learn more about the company, Sprinkman joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. So as you're traveling and, and having this first spark of Everywhere is Queer, what was like your central tenant of like, wouldn't it be great if blank? Absolutely. So through all the travels, I was always seeking like queer spaces, obviously, and I just wanted something beyond queer bars. Um, I mean, I do drink, but during the day, I would love to go to a coffee shop or like as I'm walking around a city, like don't necessarily need to be sitting in like a dark bar sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was coming actually back summer of 2021. <laughs> I was coming back from Brave Trails, which is a queer youth leadership camp, um, which I was just at that camp. I was in a space of 100 plus queer folks. And it was so euphoric and I was driving back to Boulder, Colorado at the time. And that's when Everywhere Everywhere's Queer came to mind. Um, I was like a worldwide map of queer owned businesses that might be able to create community and support around queer owned businesses and have this similar like euphoric experience. I wanted queer people and allies to experience that feeling. And so, yeah, the idea of a worldwide map of queer owned businesses came to mind. Well, and I love how this resource also makes people think differently about the ways that community can be built, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's my whole goal. I mean, when I launched this idea, I was like, there's many ways that this can go beautifully. But at the top of mind is uh, local people finding community through these spaces on the map. Yeah. Outside of community, can you share more about the significance of a resource like this one? And especially I'm thinking about the deeper meaning it can give to the phrase safe travels, you know, for people who want to use it even outside of their own city. Absolutely. I mean, just to say one thing, I've had gotten hundreds and hundreds of DMs, but several that have said, hey, my partner and I now feel comfortable traveling across the United States, going on a, a long road trip that we would have never done before. So thank you for allowing us to plan a trip and map out all these spots so we can feel safe as we navigate across the country. But just outside of like the community aspect, as someone that grew up outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 
I wish I had a resource like this when I was a kid. And so I could just go sit at a queer owned coffee shop and see queer people exist. Even when I was not out, I didn't come out to my junior year of college, but as just like a closeted queer kid or high school kid, I would have loved to have been able to go sit and once again, just see queer people exist, working, navigating through the world. I didn't have that as a kid. And with the start of Everywhere is Queer, I'd love if you can take us back to kind of the beginning stages. You're you're pretty young considering a new business, but already there's been so much growth. There's over 2,000 businesses listed worldwide. So when you were first starting this, can you speak on those beginning stages? What are those early days of your business and networking look like and consist of? Um, I mean, everything that you see on Everywhere is Queer, Instagram, website, everything, all designed by my colorblind self. Um, and, um, so it's been a journey, like, you know, registering an LLC called Everywhere is Queer, um, was a little bit of a journey. Um, but the little things, I mean, I posted on Instagram January 2nd and by March I got picked up by NBC, um, and the skim wrote an article on me and now this posted uh, a big post about me. So I got some PR hits a few months in, which was absolutely beautiful and accelerated the growth of Everywhere is Queer. Definitely. But those first few months, I was very much just sitting by myself, trying to find queer owned businesses um, to like message, to let them know that we exist and that like what we're building. Um, And what I found is, and it's so beautiful, it's it's really grown by word of mouth. I mean, social media as well. But I find that people hear of Everywhere is Queer and then they post it on their social media and it's like their community and then it just keeps going from there, um, which is kind of how it all started. I mean, I posted on Instagram and then it just kind of kept rolling. You know, we could look at the lens of, you know, at first Everywhere is Queer is also like an internal motivation. Like I would have loved this as I was navigating and I want other people to have this. But outside of that motivation to to for the community to have this resource, have you ever considered or pictured yourself as a founder? Um, I've kind of always been a little entrepreneur as a kid, you know, like in grade school, I was bedazzling pens and selling them for 25 cents, even though they (laughs) took me hours to make, um, clearly a a sign that I might have been queer. Um, (laughs) uh, I've just always been a little bit of an entrepreneur and I've always like kind of told myself, like, I would love to start my own business one day. I would love to work for myself. And yeah, I'm really grateful to say that I am full-time everywhere is queer now, which is obviously really scary. I'm not making millions of dollars or anything like that, but I'm taking this leap and I'm putting faith in myself. And every time I sign my email as founder and CEO, I feel so, you know, (laughs) proud of myself. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations, especially to the full-time transition. Thank you. You mentioned some of the initial challenges of navigating what it's like to start your own LLC, but as you've grown and are now full-time in this business, what have been some of the biggest learning curves or challenges that you faced and are continuing to learn about and face as a founder? I mean, I think it's like not letting anything slip through the cracks, keep everything organized has been um, a little challenging for me from anywhere from like keeping my books all balanced and um, you know, making sure I renew my LLC annually and little things like that. But also like as I grow bigger, learning more about like SEO on my website and making sure that like I'm utilizing my website to its maximum capacity um, to bring people in and find everywhere is queer. It's things like that that have been hard for me as I, I really don't know anything about SEO, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so with 
starting this company and growing it by word of, word of mouth, can you explain the process of how a queer-owned business gets on your map? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, if you are a queer-owned business, you can visit www.everywhereisqueer.com. You can click any of the links in any of my social media um, channels, which is just Everywhere is Queer, Instagram, TikTok. Um, so you'll land on our, my homepage of my website, which will then you'll see form to be on map. It's a short application to apply to be on the map. And then um, a few days later, uh, I will let you know when you've been added to the map. I was exploring the map a little bit, and there's different categories you have for businesses. Can you explain some of those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got retail, so like brick and mortar. So we welcome any like online stores. You do not have to be brick and mortar. You can just be you know, out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, you don't have to put your physical address. Um, so if you have like an Etsy store or anything like that. So we have the category of online stores. We have real estate agents. We have therapists. I have a creative category, which is a lot of artists, tattoo artists. We have an outdoor recreation category. Um, yeah, there's 14 different categories. Um, and it's so easy to just like filter by category wherever you are. Um, yeah. And with connecting with queer business owners around the country, around the globe, whether you're doing that initial outreach or they're connecting with you, what's some of your favorite parts about connecting with these business owners? You know, it's the passion and creativity. Also, just seeing the amount of inclusivity through all of these brands. Like, I keep landing on, obviously, queer own businesses' websites as I, like, check them out as they apply. And it's just incredible the amount of inclusivity in all of these brands. You know, it's like so much maybe not binary clothing categories. And just, like, really thinking about how everyone can be seen in the picture, not just queer people, queer people and allies, but no matter who you are or what your body looks like, there's so many brands out there that are ready to see you for you, no matter who you are. And I think that's just like such a beautiful thing. And I, I get really inspired by so many of these businesses. In addition to the businesses you're interacting with, there's of course the people out there using this resource. So what are some encounters, maybe digital or otherwise, that stand out to you and have kind of reaffirmed and continue to reaffirm your mission with Everywhere is Queer? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I've gotten so many messages that have made my little queer heart cry in the best possible way. But one message is uh, I got one from a small town in Europe, um, in Latvia, which is a country, but small city in Latvia. And this human said, you know, I can't be out and proud to be queer in my city as it's very dangerous. Um, but knowing that the day that I can leave my city and move somewhere else, I see all the pins on your map and it's just giving me life to know. And it's giving, it's making me so excited to experience life as an out queer person so it's things like and messages like that um i've gotten messages that people have found you know gender affirming healthcare provider uh in their city that they didn't know existed via my map um i once again had so many people message me and be like we're so excited to plan our road trip from here to here and like i said we would have never done it and all things to your map we're now hitting the road and it's, it's messages like that that keep me alive and also hearing that like a therapist has found five new clients. I just got a message about that um, because people found them on the therapist on our map is such a beautiful thing to me. 
Yeah, those stories and all the pins on the map is certainly a great sight to see. And Charlie, I want to thank you so much for joining me today to share more about Everywhere is Queer. Yeah, thanks for having me. Charlie Sprinkman is the founder and CEO of Everywhere is Queer. They spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski this summer. may be better known for its dances and lip-syncing, but the platform has also become a haven for DIYers. There are videos on everything from crafting and recipes to gardening and home repair. That's where Mercury Stardust comes in. The Wisconsin TikToker is known as the Trans Handyman, and her platform both helps people learn how to fix up their homes and highlights issues important to the trans community. Stardust released a book this year called Safe and Sound, a renter-friendly guide to home repair, and she joins me to talk about her work. I am someone who has watched your TikToks a number of times. Uh, Why did you first decide to start doing TikToks, get into this space? Well, I was a burlesque dancer here in tropical Madison, Wisconsin, and a friend of mine said, hey, you should do TikToks to promote your show that's online. And I said, no one's going to watch that. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I got on TikTok for like a few weeks and I was just doing little fun videos. And one day someone posted a video where they needed help with a ratchet strap and they were getting made fun of in the comments. So all I did was post a video in response, trying to help them in a way that I would have wanted someone to help me when I was younger. And it really seemed to resonate with people. And I really enjoyed helping one person. So I kept on doing it. And then uh, I just kept on going. (laughs) Most people who do this work are men. What has it been like for you working in this space as a handy person, especially as someone who has transitioned? It sometimes can be a little bit of an uphill battle, right? Like when I'm in a room, um, more times than not, there's probably more men in that room than any other you know, category of people. Uh, and it can be a little difficult sometimes to get um, a word in edgewise. But what has always really helped me is um, just staying true to who I am. I'm not there to necessarily impress anybody. I'm just there to be who I am and... I know that I'm really good at my job and I know I'm really knowledgeable and that's always really helped me get through those moments. But yeah, it has been difficult at times. Have there been any obstacles that surprised you? I think when I came out a few years ago and people at the property company that I worked at, everyone was pretty cool with it. But when I would go into tenants' homes, sometimes tenants would... Um, not one to have me come in. Sometimes they would say, I don't want it to come into my home and say some derogatory terms at me. Those have been difficult. And I think I knew that going in, that was always a chance that could happen. But I didn't realize to what extent people's bigotry would prevent them from seeing that all I want to do is help people and there's no agenda attached to it. Sure. Now, it seems like your TikTok uh, space is a pretty open and welcoming space. But in your work on the day to day, would you say that normally people are pretty cool or are people kind of terrible? 
Well, the the good thing about being on TikTok now is anyone who works with me, anyone who seeks me out, they know exactly who I am and they know what I stand for. So I don't really work with or work around um, people who might have bigoted views about trans people. People seek me out. And because I am a trans person in this field, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of like, I'm like, I'm, not, I'm like their favorite thing to, to, to reach out to, right? Like I'm, I'm doing quite well because I'm so different in the industry and because I think differently and I educate differently and I do things ultimately not like what the status quo is, people seek out my knowledge rather than just happen to find it. I mean, that makes me think of the first time I saw your TikTok, I went, this is a woman from Wisconsin. You don't get that accent. <laughs> from anywhere else. I, I don't know how big TikTok is in the state. I, I assume it's like anywhere else. Do you find you have this new celebrity status here? I, you know, I want to say no, but it, it's a little overwhelming sometimes, <laughs> you know, depending on where I am in the state. Like the people who are on TikTok, it's overwhelmingly queer people who follow me. But when people recognize me, um, by the very nature of the beast, they're typically people who are, you know, they're an up and up. They're cool with the trans community and the LGBTQIA community. So I don't get too nervous. But every once in a while, I'll be at Home Depot <laughs> or I'll be, you know, at Menards and someone will scream across the aisle, the trans handyman. And I get a little nervous, <laughs> to say the least. Um, you know, being recognized so openly and loudly as a trans person and publicly sometimes be nerve wracking. Um, but it, it's been a real wonderful thing. People tell me their stories about how I help them all the time. And that's just so wonderful. And what a privilege to have to help so many people. I mean, one of the things that is really interesting about your content, uh, but also, of course, your new book, you focus on a group that most of us have found ourselves a part of at one point or another, renters. What made you want to focus on the needs of renters versus homeowners? Well, my ideology when it comes to activism has always been linked to intersectionality. And in intersectionality, we believe very firmly in order to help one marginalized group of people, you have to help the people who are the most vulnerable. So we often talk about the black trans community being the community we want to help the most. Take that same type of logic and you put that into the homeowner space and you put that into a DIY space. What that end up becomes, it becomes renters. Because if you can help a renter, you can typically, sometimes, most of the time, help a homeowner. Most homeowners have been renters in their life, but most renters will never be a homeowner. And I think that that is a really important distinction. And the reason why I focus so strongly on renters, if I can help them, I can help a lot of people. If I only focus on homeowners, I'm missing an entire group of people that might need my help the most. What are some of the challenges that face renters specifically? Often landlords will be the problem. You know, I'm not necessarily against landlords entirely. I think that there's a lot of landlords who are trying their best to be as ethical and really do care about their tenants. But there are a significant amount of landlords who don't try to have a good, healthy communication with their tenants. And that leads to problems. When a tenant learns that when they ask their landlord for help, there's a very good chance they might not do anything or they're going to yell at them or blame them initially, then the problem becomes that that person who's a tenant won't ask for help next time when there's a larger issue. 
And that breakdown of communication can lead to a huge headache for me when maybe there's a, a faucet that just keeps on leaking and instead of solving it, they just let it be pushed off and that becomes a massive issue or worse yet, when they move out and I'm doing the turnover, um, that could be a huge issue and cost thousands of dollars and that in turn hurts other tenants. It hurts all the other tenants who are attached to that property management company. Sure. Is is there advice that you find yourself returning to time and again for, for people who are renting? It's always to document everything. Document, document, document. If you're having an in-person conversation with a landlord, yeah, that could be perfect for so many reasons to have that interpersonal relationship. But it's important to make sure that you go back and you email them and you do a recap of everything you talk about. If you talk to them on the phone, make sure that you text them and do the same thing. Having that chain of documentation of what was said, when things will happen and when things have gone awry is so important to protect us legally, but also to protect us um, from them and ourselves. As you look at your own experiences, do you have advice for other women, um, other trans women who are interested in handiwork, but leery of being in a space that has been generally dominated by men? This space is filled with jobs where we work alone most of the time. As a maintenance technician, I didn't have to work with a lot of people all the time. It's a great job to be an individual, to rely on your own skills, to help people directly. There are opportunities and chances when we will be working with people who probably don't have our best interests in mind and view us not favorably. But the reality is this, our skill far exceeds people's expectations almost all the time because we often have to be. Women, trans people, LGBTQIA people in the field typically have to be extremely good to get anywhere in this industry. And that often means that um, we impress people around us. So don't allow other people's perception of you to be your reality. All right. Well, Mercury, thank you so much for speaking with me today about your work. Thank you, Joy, for having me. Mercury Stardust is a Madison-based TikToker known as the Trans Handyman. Stardust's book called Safe and Sound, a renter-friendly guide to home repair, is available now. In about 15 minutes, we'll take you to a warmer time of year at Alice's Garden Urban Farm on Milwaukee's north side. But first, a NASA astrophysicist and Wisconsin native talks about overlooked achievements in astronomy. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. The Hubble Space Telescope, star matter, measuring the distance of space, those are just some of the discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics that would not be possible without the groundwork laid by women. 
Illuminating the work of these women is especially important to Michelle Thaller. She's an astrophysicist and the assistant director for science communications at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She's also a Wisconsin native who returned to Milwaukee this year to give a presentation about these hidden women and other space discoveries. Ahead of her talk in September, she joined Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. You're giving a talk as a part of the Dean's Distinguished Lecture Series at UWM called Vast Spaces, Unimaginable Monsters, and Hidden Women. (laughs) That's right. Now, much like space, I'm sure the topics you could have dived into are incredibly vast. But can you share what inspired this talk? Well, sure. Um, I have some of my favorite real monsters that we've been studying at NASA, and some of them are just mind-blowing. I mean, we... We see these objects that are uh, incredibly high energy, incredibly violent, and they just don't even seem real. I mean, some of the things we'll talk about are uh, these dead stars called neutron stars. They're not not black holes, but these other things. And they're so there's so much gravity. They bend space and time around them, and you can see behind them. And, and they're not – I mean, they're right there. They're in front of you. We study thousands of these things. And it doesn't seem real, but it is. And so I wanted an excuse to talk about some of my favorite monsters. But in sort of researching these and telling the story of these, it turns out that they were uh, they were discovered by a young woman, a graduate student. And then there are other things like, you know, how fast is the universe expanding or how far away are the galaxies? And these were all things that, uh, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that women astronomers really kind of laid the uh, the groundwork for all of this. And so it's a chance to sort of celebrate some of my favorite things to talk about and geek out about them, but also tell a story about how we we often sort of discount that women were always there in astronomy and always doing really significant work. Yeah. Historically, women are always there, always involved in some way, but aren't represented. That's right. Do you feel like in the science community, because you're more in-depth in that community yourself, (laughs) is this starting to be more recognized? Well, certainly I've seen a big change. Um, I mean, like in my career at NASA, um, I've seen so many more women now in the senior leadership and so many of the young men coming in that are really comfortable working with female colleagues and female bosses and all of that. So I've seen a a really lovely cultural change. Um, I also was kind of surprised, like when the movie uh, Hidden Figures came out about Langley Space Center and all of the women, many of them African-American women who worked as mathematicians to compute all of the stuff that NASA needed. I knew that story because I'd been working at NASA, and I knew about the computers. But all of a sudden, I realized most people didn't. Right. And, and you know, most people didn't realize that if we had just sort of assigned, you know, culturally, African-American women are going to get us to the moon, you know, they would have done it. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the, the idea that there, there weren't these people there and they weren't important all the way through. Mm-hmm. Again, that was something that was hidden, and I, I didn't realize quite how hidden it was. Right. So we're going to talk about some people to bring them to light a little more. And to paraphrase a TED Talk you did, uh, science is all about piecing together the story of where we came from bit by bit. And there are pivotal women who weren't, as you said, widely credited in discovering our story. So we're going to talk about some of them. And we're going to do a loose chronological order here. Uh, We're going to start with Henrietta Leavitt. Who was she and what major contribution to astronomy can we thank her for? Well, sure. Henrietta Leavitt was an astronomer working at Harvard University. and, um, And she wasn't the first one either. There was a whole group of women working there. And it went back to a time when the very first giant telescopes were being built. I mean, these were telescopes that were, say, 100 inches across, you know, the, the mirrors, or finally with Mount Palomar, like 200 inches across. And we were taking these big photographs of the sky. And, and, and of course, there were all of these tiny, tiny little points that were the stars, and somebody needed to go through and classify them and, you know, make this into a catalog and make it make sense. And so there were women working on that. 
And Henrietta Leavitt was working you know, around about the turn of the last century. And uh, she was somebody who set up the idea that there, there really were these different types of stars. She didn't even really understand why they, they had different types of light coming. Eventually, we did. And it began to be um, a way that we were able to find out the scale of the universe, really how big the universe was. She was the first person uh, through her work that was able to measure the distance to the, the nearest galaxy to us, the Andromeda galaxy. And it's a whopping 2 million light years away, right? It takes like 2 million years to get there at 186,000 miles per second. So, you know, the idea that the scale of the universe and, and someone like, like Hubble, we all think about the, the expansion of the universe being discovered by Edwin Hubble, but he wouldn't have been able to do that without the groundwork of these women. Yeah, without knowing that here's the distance, here's how we measure it. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so next we have Cecilia Payne Gapashkin. And we can kind of like this is a general vast summary by me, a non-scientist, but <laughs> we can thank her for helping us understand exactly what star stuff is, right? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it amazes people to know that just about 100 years ago, right, so Cecilia was working in, starting to work in the 1920s, and when she was, was first working as a graduate student at Harvard, she uh, was Cecilia Payne, and then she got married, and now it's Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin, but Cecilia was the first person, and again, a woman graduate student, you know, a young scientist, uh, who realized what the stars were made of. And doesn't it kind of blow your mind that 100 years ago we didn't know what the stars were made of? Yeah. The, the idea at the time was that they were things like the Earth. They were big rocks. And honestly, if you had a rock that big, it would glow because, I mean, just the gravity crushing it together would, would drive the temperature up. And so the, uh, the idea was that these things were basically big planets like the Earth. And uh, Cecilia looked very closely at the light that was coming from them and realized there was no way that that could be given these observations. And it's one of these lovely stories where she publishes this doctoral dissertation. It's very short. It says, hey, look at this. They, they, <laughs> they, they, they have to be made out of gas. They have to be made, be made out of uh, mostly hydrogen gas. And the, the establishment kind of laughed at her for like a week. <laughs> and then they looked at it and said, she's absolutely right. There's mm. no way it could be anything other. So, I mean, she's the person showed us that the stars are these big burning nuclear furnaces of hydrogen gas. And that sets up the stage for how every atom in our body is made. So she, she starts to figure out really what the whole universe is made of. Amazing. Um, but I imagine that backlash lasted beyond a week, right? What kind of things, obstacles did she face when trying to present this theory? Well, she, she actually faced plenty of obstacles in her life. I mean, she was uh, English originally, and she had tried to go to, I believe, Cambridge. I can, I can look that up. But, but they, they basically said there's no place for you here. And so she went to uh, Harvard in the United States because they allowed her at least to come and study. The, um, the backlash to her discovery was honestly fairly quick because it was so brilliantly simple and compelling uh, that really, I mean, I mean, she, <laughs> she laid it all out. She said, look, if you look very carefully at the light and what we're learning about stars and how, how they emit light, this can't be a big rock. Mm -hmm. and, and, and sure enough, there was no way around it. So, I mean, it's a funny one where people were like, oh, ha, funny graduate student. And then, oh, like, wait a yeah, second. Oh, yeah. OK. <laughs> I guess this makes sense. I, yeah. <laughs> so and we'll skip ahead a bit uh, to Nancy Grace Roman. She's also known as the mother of Hubble. And that title might give listeners a clue as to her accomplishments. But can you share more about Nancy here? Well, that's right. I mean, again, we, we were talking about women who we didn't realize, or at least that it wasn't so visible, that they had major impact. I mean, we, we were just talking about Cecilia Payne. And so she became the chair of the Harvard 
uh, astronomy department. I mean, the chair, the head of the yeah. astronomy department. And this was in the, uh, you know, the 1930s and 40s. And then um, Nancy Grace Roman was, again, a, a, an amazing astronomer that had gone to the University of Chicago, uh, had tried to get a tenured professorship. And they said, no, you know, you're not, a, you're, you're a woman, basically. It's kind of that obvious. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so she was hired by NASA in 1958 as the first head of astrophysics at NASA. So think about that. You know, the very first time NASA has a head astronomer scientist, it's a woman. I mean, I mean, Nancy was that good. They really wanted her. And she became the person that advocated for the idea of telescopes in space. Up above the atmosphere, you the atmosphere absorbs lots of light and it, 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 it distorts everything else. And so you get this wonderfully clear, real view of the universe when you go up into space. And Nancy was really the tireless advocate of that all the way through the Hubble Space Telescope and even up to the new James Webb Space Telescope. And she's also the one to thank for taking the idea to reality of establishing NASA's program for space-based astronomical observations, as you mentioned, versus executive, like laying the foundation of you coming into NASA, being in a leadership position yourself. What's the, just a curious insider question, what's the culture at NASA in recognizing, you know, the women who were there before you? At at NASA, there was, you know, at least some attempt, uh, you know, I mean, when I, when I went to a government job, I was impressed by at least the conscious attempt to look at our numbers as to who we were hiring and how we were hiring them. And we found all kinds of problems, all kinds of uh, unconscious bias and conscious bias in the way that we were hiring people. And actually, in, in fact, the, the James Webb Space Telescope, the one that, that just launched a little more than a year ago, um, it's the first telescope where the applications, like if, anybody can use these telescopes, they're public. Mm. People don't know that. You can write in and you can say, I would like to use the Webb telescope to look at this. And then once a year, there's a big review panel that looks at everything and ranks them in terms of how good the quality of the proposal is. And uh, this is the first observatory where we take all the names off. There's no, you have no idea who this proposal comes from. And that was a big deal because a lot of scientists, you know, justifiably have good reputations. You know, I wait, you know, I, 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 I know how to do this. You know, I, I'm, I'm a talented person. I've been working on this for years. But no, I mean, it, it just has to come down to what you write and, and, and the, the argument you put forward. And so we have by far the most diverse selection now we've ever had, uh, not just women, but uh, ethnicities, different nations. And, and the one that I really love is uh, earlier career astronomers versus, versus more later career. A lot of people were sort of, I think, kind of banking on, well, I've been doing this for decades. I know what I'm doing, so please give me the time. Yeah. And then w- when you actually have to write a good proposal. <laughs> <laughs> that really sifts people out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So with part of your job, you oversee about four divisions at NASA, and you work to help bring them together to do better public outreach and education. How do you think more people can help build that connection of science and storytelling? Because you do a lot of that personally. You make presentations globally about vast different topics. What do you think is needed to help foster that connection a little better? Oh, it's so hard. I mean, I um, I really sympathize with people that feel that science is not for them um, because I was, I was scared and intimidated pretty much all the way through my science education starting at college. I, I, I did very well in science and I enjoyed it in high school. I remember going to, uh, uh, you know, science grab bag lectures at UWM and things like that. And then I got to college and I was just blown out of the water. I had no idea how to succeed in these classes. Um, I, I didn't realize that a lot of the students had had a lot more math than I did you know, coming here from the, the, the Wisconsin public schools, which are great, but I didn't have the years of calculus that a lot of the kids did. 
And uh, I just took that all on myself, that I must be an idiot. <laughs> and that was traumatic. But I loved astronomy, and I didn't want to give it up. I don't know why it's taught the way it is. I think that the, the easiest thing I can say is it's very time-consuming to teach somebody more one-on-one. -on -one and say, okay, how much of this do you understand now? And then, oh, hey, well, let's fill in this. And, and you know. Because you were kind of left to be like, here's this, yeah. figure it out, right? Is <laughs> right. that a generalization exactly. of how you felt? Exactly. And, and I mean, I used to compare it to, you know, I mean, science is, is no more difficult than learning, say, a language. I mean, it, it's its own language. And you know, normally people don't say to you, it's like, well, you know, you could never learn Spanish. You know, no matter how hard you try, there's no way you could learn Spanish. I mean, I mean, some people are gifted at languages. Some people are not. But with practice, I think everybody could become you know, reasonably functional in Spanish. But what happens if you go into a classroom and the first day someone's just yelling at you in Spanish the whole time and daring, right. daring you to figure it out? And I know the professors really do try. But I think to teach science, it's a personal thing as to how much you understand at a time and how much you're sort of getting at a time. And teaching it in a big lecture scenario, I mean, for, for any kind of real detailed science, I just don't think it works very well. And that's hard, I mean, because professors don't have time or, or you know, we don't have the resources to teach it more one-on-one. -on -one. But there's nothing complicated or difficult about it. It's just trying to teach it in a mass way where you don't have somebody... I mean, teaching you something as almost more like an apprenticeship. It's like, you know, we're, we're going to do this until you get it. And, and of course you can get it. You know, there's nothing magical about this. I mean, anyone can learn this. But most of the time, students are kind of left to their own devices to figure it out. And that's hard. And I'm sorry about that. You know, I, I really wish people could take the time to teach it differently. How do you see your work and what you do today as part of the effort to change that slowly? Well, you know, I, I, think, I think as far as basic science goes, I think sometimes lectures can be be very effective. So if you're just trying to teach a class to just to tell people, you know, what are stars made of? Where do we come from? How far away are the galaxies? Um, if, if you just sort of want to give a class to to tell the stories of how you are and how you relate to this larger universe, people think space is far away. That's just, it's just hilarious. Because, I mean, astrophysics is, you know, why is there iron in your blood, right? Mm. And, and, and why is there calcium in your bones? Um, astrophysics is incredibly intimate to how we as human beings are formed, really. You know, I, I studied a, a, a star system in the Orion Nebula about 2,000 light years away that it, it actually forms more water. It, it, it forms molecules of water in a, in a very hot gaseous form, but enough to fill the oceans of Earth 60 times a day. That's where water comes from. I mean, these molecules come from space. And so this idea of, you know, what are we and, and how did we get here? You know, I mean, astrophysics is everything that's going on around you. It's not just what happens above the atmosphere. Well, and we have women to thank like you and some of the women we talked about today to help our understanding of this. So, Michelle, thank you so much for your time. Well, it's been great to be here. And I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing more people. You know, I, I, I just moved back and I, I want to be part of the, uh, the astronomy community around here. Welcome back to Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Great to be back. Michelle Thaller is an astrophysicist and the assistant director for science communication at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. She spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski in September. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. 
Alice's Garden Urban Farm is a unique oasis in the city that cultivates plants and community. We'll take a tour next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Every month, I chat with Venus Williams, the executive director of Alice's Garden and the Fondy Food Center, for a series we call Dig In. We talk about gardening, herbal remedies, and healthy cooking. But earlier this year, we had a chance to change things up. To mark the start of the growing season in spring, I headed out to Alice's Garden Urban Farm on Milwaukee's north side, where I met up with Venus. This is great. I've never been here. Yes, welcome to Alice's Garden. Anytime someone is here for the first time or just in general, we say welcome home. It might not be the home you ever imagined, but it is home in the way of sanctuary and um, comfort and just all that it nourishes. Homes should be nourishing, so welcome home. It is really... uh just like a beautiful kind of oasis in the middle of the city. You're, you're in like the city, you're going through neighborhoods, going past schools, going past every, everything we think of in Milwaukee. And then there's this nice, just big plot of land. And then here we are. Well, it looks a, a little more beautiful later in the season <laughs> um, with not as many, not as much work that needs to be done, but yes, it is a slice of heaven. I know that sounds so corny, but it it really is. It is a place of nurturing. And so we're we're nurturing plants, we're nurturing people, we're nurturing community, we're regenerating relationships between people and soil, between people and people. We say we use gardening as the carrot, pun intended, to get people to come through the gates to impact their entire quality of life. I'm fine. <laughs> there, there is something about um, gardening and working the land. I never have more neighbors talk to me than when I'm out in my yard and they're like, well, what are you up to? What are you doing? Yes. Yesterday, I spent the entire time in our front yard, which is pretty massive. And the conversations that you have, um, people want to know, people want to learn. People are excited when they see someone else taking the time to care for a piece of earth, whether that's a really small piece or whether it's a large 2.2 acre parcel such as this. Now I'm seeing, of course, uh, life already happening in the garden, as you said. What am I looking at right now? I'm seeing dandelions for sure. Dandelions, even especially in my jar here, I'm going to make some <laughs> dandelion and comfrey oil, start brewing that this evening. But there's, the mint is, uh, that's lovage, that's a, a natural fence of lovage right there. If you had come about a week ago, the apple trees were blossoming, 
those beautiful white and or pink blossoms. You are seeing lots of onions and nettle and people have planted lettuce and spinach and collard greens already and mustard greens and some Swiss chard. We have 100 rental plots that represent about 80 families and community organizations. Some people have two plots. So some people are already going and you'll see things that are three inches high. And then some others, we have a lot of educators out here and they will start planting when the school year is out. It's about your own personal schedule. I say that the lock on this fence is the biggest joke in the city of Milwaukee. There has to be 200 keys. So you get to come and go as you please, as it fits your own personal calendar and schedule, but you never know who you're going to run into while you're out here. One of the things I do find amazing about this space is like, I, of course I'm listening to it in a, in a slightly different way than the average person. And you do see, or hear I should say, some car noise in the background. You'll hear trucks, of course I'm hearing uh, I'm hearing the tiller, but I'm also hearing just a lot of... The birds! That's what I, I hear a lot birds. of. A lot of the birds. Fortunately or unfortunately, the bird that's most dominant right now is that darn red-winged blackbird. Um, mm. However, there are the robins and all of this other wildlife. And a month from now, the birds and the butterflies and the variety of bees will just keep multiplying. We have created an incredible ecosystem out here that nourishes the plants and the seeds. It nourishes everything that we want to grow. So we want urban dwellers to come to love the other parts of creation that we sometimes run from, like bumblebees. <laughs> or I saw someone earlier this morning ducking from a butterfly. Why the heck do you need to duck from a butterfly? <laughs> so we just have this relationship, this unnatural relationship with nature. And part of what we want to do out here at Alice's Garden Urban Farm is help you to celebrate all these other creatures that you share the planet with. Now, as you're looking around, I, I am seeing like so many different plots. It, it's interesting to see the different states that things are in. What would you say is like the, the most popular things that people are going to grow in this garden this year? Potatoes, tomatoes, cabbage, all types of greens. Obviously, because of my passion and some of the other apprentices here, lots of herbs. There will be at least four to five dozen different herbs cultivated out here. You will see peas and beans that you are familiar with and beans that you have never encountered in your entire life. One of our favorite things to grow out here are peanuts. So several of the gardeners um, are growing peanuts for the first time this year and some have been growing them their entire time here due to one of our most seasoned gardeners, uh, Mr. James Williams, who stopped gardening about two years ago. And I think this is his 100th birthday this year Ooh. in June. So I'm getting ready to reach out to him. So that's the other thing. We learned so much from one another. Someone asked me last week when they were out here and they were observing all of the people coming through, like how diverse is this garden? 
And we say that we're probably one of the most diverse spaces in the city of Milwaukee. Um, and we're talking humans. I was about to say. <laughs> we're talking human beings. And that's what a community garden should be. It should really be about bringing people together who may never have an opportunity to meet and speak, but everybody has to eat and everybody should learn how to grow something that they eat. It seems like it's nurturing diversity, of course, humans, food, and then also animals. Yes. Yes, some of them are <clears throat> more welcoming than others. <laughs> sure. There's a family of bunnies and of course the kids love to see the rabbits and the adults do not. And I just remind everyone of what my grandmothers always taught me. You plant enough for you and them. Plant enough so that you can feed everyone. Now I know we're in the middle of a garden mm -hmm. but you're always reading. I even saw you had a book with yes, you. I have books all over the place. So I can't remember the name of the author right now, but it's Creating Sanctuary is the name of the book. And, and that's what this is. We are here to create a safe space for everyone. Except maybe not that red-winged blackbird, but we'll, we'll leave him alone right now. Um, so Creating Sanctuary is the book that I suggest right now. It is about cultivating and birthing spaces that are welcoming. One of my spiritual teachers once wrote, we are all here to walk each other home. We're all here to walk each other home. And so that's what Creating Sanctuary, the book, and Alice's Garden is about, is walking folks home back to themselves, back to the land. Um, for those of us who are old enough to know what it was like to be walked home before we could Uber and Lyft and all of those, when you walk someone home, you're fully present with them and you have conversations that you may never have. So this is Sanctuary. The book of the month is Creating Sanctuary. And we hope that the entire city of Milwaukee makes their way into Alice's Garden Urban Farm this season. Comes walk home. That's right. That's right. Venus, thank you so much for inviting me out here. Thank you for accepting the invitation and come again. Venus Williams is the executive director of Alice's Garden and the Fondy Food Center. I visited the garden in May at the start of the growing season. You can find all of our previous conversations with Venus, including our recent conversation about Kwanzaa at wuwm.com. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll explore how the end of a transportation service in Milwaukee County for people with disabilities is affecting their ability to get around. Plus, NPR host Scott Detrow visited Milwaukee earlier this year. We'll revisit his conversation with Mayan Silver about his approach to political coverage in a swing state like Wisconsin. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. PR.